Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the DXM Podcast. I am Colborn Bell. I am joined today uh, by professor, author, and generally just incredibly kind, plugged-in personality, Magnus Reich. Hey, Colburn. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm super excited to just dig into uh, the wealth of knowledge that you have. Um, and I'd love to start where we start with every guest. And, and that is just really to give the mic to you. And please let everybody know anything you'd like to share about yourself uh, and how you came to be involved with NFTs. So Magnus Resch, originally from Berlin, I'm, I'm working on the intersection of art, business, and technology. And I've been doing this for um, almost 20 years. I'm 38. And when I say 20 years, it makes me feel very old. <laughs> now, um, I, um, how I got involved is I, was, I started selling art for my friends when I was very young to finance my studies in the U.S., and um, eventually, over time, I grew more into it. I wrote my PhD thesis on the topic, how to make a gallery more successful, simply because when I was running my gallery, I wanted to know why Gagosian and a couple of others are making so much money and I was struggling. So that was the key trigger to do my PhD thesis, which um, I translated into simple words. The PhD was in economics, um, and it's now published as a book called Management of Art Galleries. I left then the tech industry, uh, I left then the art world and went into the tech industry, started three companies. One of them was very successful, luckily the last one, um, an online fitness company, which is still today one of the largest online fitness company in, in Europe, highly profitable, obviously, uh, during Corona. Um, and when I sold it, I went back into what I was really passionate about, and that's the art world. So... For the past 10, 15, 12 years, I've been living in New York, focusing on, on the intersection of art, technology, and business in different capacities. As an entrepreneur, I started two companies. One of them is Larry's List. The other one was an app called Shazam for Art, where you can take a photo of an artwork right behind me, for example, and then it will tell you the price and who the artists are. Um, and I was, um, unfortunately, that app doesn't exist anymore because galleries didn't like the transparency that I provided. Uh, but that's right. a different story, and we will come back to that. We essentially, you could see the price and comparable prices and so on, something which the art world hates. Now, um, that entrepreneurial experience and my academic background led me to teaching. I'm now teaching uh, for many years. I've been teaching for nine years um, uh, at Yale University, courses on art um, management and art uh, technology as an economist. So my current class is called Entrepreneurship in the Art Market. And I've been writing books um, simply because I wanted to bring the message across. One of them I mentioned before, Management of Art Galleries. Another one is called How to Become a Successful Artist, which is based on the largest research study ever done in the art world. And my most recent book, which I have here, is called How to Create and Sell NFTs, A Guide for All Artists. And Colburn, you're in it too. Yeah, uh, uh, honored. Thank you. Um, you know, I've always just been impressed, one, by the, by the diversity of your experience, but the way that you're able to like distill ideas and communicate them so succinctly. I think you're one of those people who is like a rare bridge that can be interdisciplinary and, and really express and bring and talk uh, to people about all different facets of what is going on. Uh, it's no surprise that NFTs caught your interest. 
So maybe you can speak to kind of like the origin story of this um, and, and what was so exciting to you about the technology. So with NFTs, I got involved. Nobody was talking about NFTs, but Sarah Mayo has um, a great artist. Um, she launched Bitcoin in 2015. And I saw her show at 303 Gallery. That was the first time I really got involved with, oh, blockchain and, oh, that has something to do with the art world. She brought me into this. So I, will, I kept on looking into it. I never really thought um, this is going to be uh, so exciting. I'm going to spend more time into it. I even going to dedicate uh, a whole book to it. But then um, I got more involved through the generative art movement in 2017-18 when AI companies were playing around creating artworks. One artwork sold at Sotheby's for $250,000. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I got um, uh, involved in it on the entrepreneurial front with a platform um, that was providing artists the tools to create uh, generative artworks. And that was the moment when I really tapped into it. So I came across art blogs. Eventually, I came across um, Bored Apes, CryptoPunks, uh, the Kitties, and, and all that. So that was, I don't know, 2017, 18, when I spent more time looking at it. And from that, the path uh, just went uh, straight up and suddenly got this hockey stick when I really dedicated a lot of time on it, when suddenly this became a whole business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was it was almost the <laughs> uh, almost the blind leading the blind in that way. In that every week it was just another high sale, another high sale. The the fervor, the mania. Um, as somebody who studies, you know, art and economics, I'm sure you can point to numerous examples of, you know, I guess where prices get ahead of themselves, where bubbles are created. Here we are on the other side. Um, so I want to talk one about the fervor, but I also want to talk about why you think this is kind of longstanding and here to stay. So suddenly it got super dynamic in 2021 um, when the prices reached an incredible level. That was the time when suddenly everything got mixed up and I, I needed to take the time to write this book because I realized, hey, there is a lot happening. There's so much interest on this topic, but let's dissect it. Yeah. What I, I was, I, I must say I was overwhelmed. I went to so many events. I went to Austin, NFT NYC, all these other conferences, and suddenly everyone was talking about the art world. And when you listen to those participants in the NFT space, it sounded like galleries and museums will not play a role in the future. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything is everything has changed. The MoMA will only show digital artworks and paintings don't have a role anymore. It's so fascinating to be in this world when in a hype and right in the center of it, you feel like, okay, this is really going to happen. And then you think, wait, let's take a step back. <laughs> um, so what is it really? We talk about NFT art, but essentially it's digital art and NFT is not an art form. It's just a medium, a way to sell your artworks. So is that something entirely new? No. Digital art has been around for years. Um, now it just receives a lot of attention. And who are these people who are buying it and pushing up prices? What are their motives? 
are these going to be the future art collectors that are going also going to buy um, uh, other artworks from the more traditional artwork? What are their incentives? Well, turns out that most of them were mostly driven by money. And that helped me to understand that once the next hype comes, they will most likely switch from art to the next music, ticketing, gaming, and so on. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I wanted to take that step back and look at it more from an outside perspective to help other artists who were as overwhelmed as I was to deal with this and make a sense out of this. I think that's a super, super wise point. You know, things I think really got out of hands when the EDM DJs brought all of their marketing teams into this and yeah. they had a playbook to kind of generate and manipulate more of the masses. That was the precursor to everything absolutely going uh, bananas. And in that, you know, a lot of independent artists who had been kind of sold this dream, this promised land, um, that there was a way to distribute and sell their art. They were seeing all of this money being made, but didn't recognize that they were like professional teams doing uh, some, you know, professional sales work. Uh, and I know for many that was confusing. I know a lot tried to, you know, scramble to find representation. Many went to kind of old, old models uh, and really nothing seemed to work. So I think it's nice now for kind of everything to settle for people to kind of get their bearings again. Um, and to, to, you learn a lot of lessons kind of in, in that about yourself and others. So I was just, um, while I was teaching my class at Yale, I invited people to speak to my students. And it was fascinating because my students are MFA students from Yale School of Art, which is one of the top art programs, and MBA students um, as well from, from Yale School of Management. And what people said was very interesting. He's a nice guy. Um, uh, we, uh, I, I really liked um, that he was so open and, and shared um, his very honest opinion. And what he said is, um, in the future, why should there be painters? Um, right? It's inefficient. <laughs> so, mm. so it was just fascinating to see one of the, one of the key players um, really believing that digital art is going to take over. I, I have a different uh, view on that. And um, what I think what's going to stay from this whole hype is... The technology. The technology yeah. matters. Um, what are NFTs? NFTs are a certificate of authenticity, nothing else. Today, when you sell a painting, you get a piece of paper that has a headline that says certificate of authenticity. Now, um, whenever this artwork is traded 10 years, 20 years down the road, the auction house, the intermediate, the advisor who's going to sell it will want to see that certificate of authenticity of that painting because that proves, oh, it's the real one. If you don't have it, that's a problem. Now, everyone can fake these pieces of paper, right? We all have Adobe Acrobat. We can go in and edit and, and done, right? You change it. You, you edit it. Um, so what the NFT does is it solves that problem. And make sure that the certificate of authenticity that you currently have in a paper form is actually a digital one and it's uncorruptible. You cannot fake it. Whenever it's modified, everyone sees it because it's unique. First key advantage. And what I really believe is going to solve a lot of problems in the art world, provenance. Mm. 
Yeah. Right now, the provenance can be tracked. Every time a painting changes hands, it will be tracked in the NFT, accessible for everyone. Love that. Love that. I've been working on this with my app. When you took a photo, we were creating this title registry, but galleries hated it. Now, I believe NFTs solve exactly that problem. And here is the second advantage that NFTs will have. Every time that painting is traded, the NFT is traded. And artists benefit because whenever this trade is happening, they get royalties. Huge. That's why. Yeah. And only that's why I believe this is going to happen because artists are incentivized to whenever a work leaves the studio to launch an NFT that comes with it yeah. because they get money in the long run and they get money immediately. Every artist know that it takes forever until they get paid from galleries. It can take up to three, six months. And sometimes they don't even know when a work was sold. With NFTs, they get paid immediately, even in secondary sales. And I find this fascinating. Is that going to happen tomorrow, Colburn? No, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Maybe in 10 years. I mean, huge market innovation, right? Talk about like a, a place where middlemen were high and trust was low, like the contemporary art market needed this pressure. And of course, everybody is not just like jumping ship and moving over because I think the one thing that NFTs have not solved yet is display, right? Everywhere that I went, I was generally very disappointed to see digital artwork on TV screens. I thought it, I thought it cheapened the experience. Um, and there is something still so incredibly tactile about, you know, the, the physical painting that just can't be replicated. Um, and, and that's when I began to, I think, soften my maximalism on just NFT, everything, everything will be digital. You know, what I got excited about was the format of VR. Right. And the ability to to blow everything up. But we're still operating really into two dimensions. We don't have a very good spatial web. We don't have like these, you know, I was searching to create empathetic experiences centered around these art pieces. Um, so when the mania hit and we saw a lot of people just, you know, throwing these works up in whatever way they could, I, I felt that it did do a bit of a disservice. But you mentioned something really important. So what relevance will digital artworks play in the future? What relevance will the metaverse play in the future? I have the answer. Of course not. I don't even know what the metaverse is, right? What right. is the metaverse? There are hundreds of definitions of it. Of course, we don't know, right? But digital art, when you look at it, I'm an economist, right? So when we look at it um, uh, just by, by the numbers, um, And we leave out the last year. Let's just leave out the last year because it corrupted uh, a little bit. Digital mm -hmm. art uh, in 2019 played almost no role in the art market. Paintings by far the number one. And then nothing came. And then photography. And I'm talking here about volume, so trades um, of, of artworks. I'm talking about price points. Um, Uh, I'm talking about total value and I'm talking about number of exhibitions. So paintings was really everything. Yeah. Now digital art has come on the map and has enjoyed much more attention. So museums like, uh, like yours, um, I, I, I'm honest, 
you know, if you had started your museum in 2015, I would have said, all right, uh, great idea, but it's going to be marginal. But now, since all the attention went on to digital art, um, it's fascinating um, how how it has shifted people's perspective and um, and it's good. So what you're doing is obviously fantastic because you're paving the way for a future new medium that's going to increase in value in the long run. We saw the spike uh, in the last two years. That's fine. Um, and I love it because now every digital artist who was suffering before finally um, uh, got their dues and made a lot of money. And that's great. And people should make a lot of money. And all these other artists that are out there uh, should make a lot of money. But the key question is, is that sustainable? How can we make sure that in 10, 15, 20 years, those prices, um, those artists will still um, sell uh, for decent prices? So institutions like yours are incredibly relevant. What Tina Rivers is doing, same thing with uh, in Buffalo, incredibly relevant. What Diminti is doing is so relevant because they are doing today the work that will be relevant in five and ten years from now. So I just hope that all of these players will have the breadth and the financial means to go through this valley of uh, less interest, of less money that is being poured in it, um, and, and continue building. Well, I can say uh, with full certainty that the museum will continue to be here uh, and participatory, and we will continue to explore just like alternate decentralization means that ensure just the longevity of the institution. Um, you know, beyond that, I wanted to touch on something, uh, and I think this is the biggest question mark having, you know, studied economics myself is that we are transitioning art into kind of a state of digital abundance, right? No longer is it kind of the one thing, anything can be, you know, right click saved as the meme uh, that triggers a lot of people, but it also emboldens a lot of people to be the one holder. Uh, It speaks to digital memetics, it speaks to the speed of culture. Um, Maybe you have some thoughts on just why this felt so of the now and kind of how there is this intergenerational shift in preferences to be in more digital spaces and experience and connect around digital objects and digital things. I want to revert that question back to you because you spend way more time uh, looking into this. Why do you, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious. Why do you think this is? Uh, I think probably the early to mid 2000s were characterized by the rise of Web 2. I think Web 2 really encouraged people to think of themselves as a brand and a brand is a static, relatable personality. I think the generation that came after is in a bit of a rebellion against this and they want fluid identities and they want uh, themselves to be free to explore and they don't want to have to conform to themselves as like the one thing that they are, if that makes sense. So they want assets and markers of identity that aren't static, that are kind of dynamic and interchangeable. And then how does that explain the rise of digital art? Uh, Because instead of like buying like whatever it is, like the Beanie Baby or the Tamagotchi, the markers that are the inclusion 
they they buy the NFT that speaks to their current identity, right? Or the artwork that is of their relevancies now. So they want the ability to kind of move in, in and out of these personalities. Yeah, and what comes with the two is applicability. Where can I, right now, I can only show my painting. When we talk about mediums, I can only right. show my painting at home. Right. With, um, with digital art, something else comes. I can actually use it in different places. I want to meet you in a, uh, in a restaurant and show you my art, but not flipping through it. Um, or maybe show you a video of my home. How cool is it if you can see it going into the into the metaverse, going to into the Minty's um, room and uh, seeing this art installed on the walls? Yeah. Makes it so much more um, uh, approachable um, and gives way more depth to it. So um, since so much is happening digitally, yes, that adds to it and. I'm happy that this movement has started. Uh, what are kind of the general responses that you see from your students? Uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. So um, this year we had, um, as, <laughs> so I have, to, I have to answer differently. Um, you know, as a professor, um, you, uh, every student knows this, they often reuse the same slides Yeah, and uh, sure. the course structure uh, remains the same. You know, you update it here and there. In the past two years, and it sucked, I had to review my entire <laughs> slides. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I had to review my entire course structure because everything, every question, had somehow, somehow related back to NFTs. Yeah. So, um, um, Yeah, that really, that really had an impact. And when I invited, I tried to invite the guest speaker that came to my class. Uh, three years ago, we didn't have any digital artists. Mm. Uh, since then, we had um, people was coming, Cause uh, came and talked about his digital project. Uh, we had Duncan Cockfoster uh, coming uh, from Nifty Gateway, the founder. Um, we had Charlie Stewart, uh, Sotheby CEO, uh, coming in and talking to my students. And Most of the questions that he got were related to NFTs. While, um, um, and then we had Adam Chin coming, who um, has with Life Art one of the uh, products that help artists to enter uh, the Web3 space. Mm. Um, but he also is an art advisor. He's, he's one of the biggest art advisors. Sotheby's paid $80 million just for him to sign on. Um, and then he left uh, last year. So this guy is a heavy art advisor. All the questions evolved around decentralization, power back to the artists, mm. um, and tools that help artists to enter Web3. Mm. I think something we haven't particularly touched on is, uh, you know, th there is also a, a cultural element and there is an accessibility for collectors, right? I spent a lot of years in New York City, in Chelsea, wandering around those galleries. I never, I never felt that that art was for me or was accessible. And quite frankly, it wasn't, right? But suddenly in this new space, right, there was, you know, an, an openness and a permissionlessness that allowed me to access it. And that was, that was really, really exciting from the collector standpoint. I know you speak 
in that op-ed uh, that you just published about collectors becoming closer to artists? Um, they, they do. Um, we are now at a very interesting moment in, in when you look at the power structures in the art market. So far, the power was in the distribution channels, mm -hmm. galleries. Galleries decided who is going to become the next superstar. They were the gatekeepers to the art market. 50% went to the gallery for that service, finding an artist and then pushing them into the institutions. Artists were not powerful. They depended on galleries. Often artists don't even know who's buying their works. Right. Now, this is changing. With decentralization comes more autonomy and power to the creators. Um, Andreessen Horowitz published this uh, great overview where you can see, all right, artists on Spotify made $6 per artist. Uh, uh, creators on Facebook made six cents uh, per creator and artists in the NFT space made $160,000 per creator. Um, so why is that? Because the intermediaries are cut out. OpenSea uh, doesn't take 50%, but much less um, and so on. Obviously, more money to the artist, more power to the artists. And when we translate it to the traditional art world, we see first signs of this shift happening too, where collectors now can communicate directly with artists, um, where artists creating Discord communities and on, on other platforms, where they exchange directly with um, their community. Um, think of uh, Dave Krugman, who's hosting events uh, at Roberta's Pizza. Think of um, um, Justin Avezzano, who's creating his own galleries. Um, and uh, think of Anne Spalter, who's having uh, events. Think of um, so many other uh, artists who are directly communicating with their buyers, something which hasn't happened in the past so actively as it's happening now. Now, that's great, of course. However, with the direct relation between artist and buyer, there also come responsibilities. Those responsibilities, for example, are what do you, you need to handle invoice writing. Right? Artists don't want to do this, but you need to handle that. You need to handle with weird requests by collectors. You need to handle um, um, uh, complaints by uh, collectors. You need to handle, um, they want immediate access to you. Oh, can you come to this? Can you do this? Can I use your artwork for this? And so on. Stuff that usually the gallery handled for you, now you have to deal directly. So moving forward, since artists can't do it all themselves, they will bring on managers to help them run their business. Similar to what the movie industry has done when suddenly agents were serving as a, as a buffer between uh, um, uh, movie studios and the uh, artists. And we will see the same thing happening to the art world eventually, where the role of gallerists will shift, becoming more agents to artists, being maybe employed full-time on them. And then the power is really with the artist. The artist decides which agent do I want to work with. Here is your full-time contract. And you're not making 50% commission. You're making much less commission um, on me. Because I will work with different agents. I think that's incredibly prescient. There's another um, avenue I want to explore to, with you in that 
revolves around uh, accessibility of voice, right? Obviously, the the traditional art canon dominated white Western male, um, but we've seen an explosion. We've seen emergence of artists from all over the world. And I'd like perhaps for you to speak on uh, how kind of like open source and permissionless technologies do allow anybody with, you know, a, a creative endeavor or edge to begin to share and build that community online. In a world where you have decentralized uh, centralized institutions like galleries, like museums, and the art world is highly centralized. I did a study of 500,000 artists and we realized that there's only one network of galleries and museums that lead to success. So that is how centralized it is. Of all the 20,000 galleries that are out there, the 60,000 other art institutions, museums, nonprofits, and so on, there are only a handful of them that lead you to success. If you want to read more about this, you can you can take a look at one of my books or the studies on my website, magnusresh.com. I won't um, ruin the surprise, but I think I know what it is. Say it again. I won't ruin the surprise for the audience, but I think I do know what that that number one factor is. Well, it's the network that the artist is in. It, it, it right. doesn't, it doesn't um, uh, rely on the actual work. It really depends on the centralized network of galleries and institutions that make an artist. If you're not part of the small group, you won't make it. Now, uh, you talk about inequalities and um, that mostly white men, um, painters dominated the art world. Well, here is the explanation. That central network consisting of a handful of galleries and a handful of top institutions guess who ran them? White man. And we call that the home bias. White men tend to collect white men. Um, women tend to collect women. Um, uh, black people tend to collect and so on. So um, the, the home bias is very obvious um, and, and statistically proven. So naturally, artists um, who didn't fit to that profile were left out. And that's the explanation of the inequality in the art world. Now, we're shifting to the NFT space where Web3, one of the key fundamentals of Web3 is decentralization. So you don't have these key central institutions anymore. And suddenly it opens up to everyone. And of course, uh, and maintaining the ability to be anonymous or pseudo-anonymous, right? And to choose an identity that you project and to choose the character you wish to play. And some artists having multiple identities or multiple pseudonyms in which they operate. Um, it is. You know, I've, been, I've been advocating for this for long. When we look at acquisition committees at the top museums that are part of this one central network that defines what artists, uh, who, who's going to become the next artist or not, um, to have blind auditions like they have in the music industry where a curtain is put in front of you. If you join an orchestra, there's a curtain so you don't see if that's a woman, uh, what color mm. they have and so on. Now, in the art world, in those commission uh, acquisition committees, you always see, all right, name of the artist, so you know the gender. Um, yeah. And you can Google uh, the artist and you know which gallery is representing the artist and so on. Um, so blind auditions for acquisition committees would be a great idea, um, but uh, they, they don't do that yet. How, uh, did you go to the Rafik Anadol MoMA exhibit? Yeah, I saw it. Uh, how do you think, you know, museums will continue adapt to adapt to NFTs and this work? 
so this is super interesting because I've been talking to a lot of, I was just yesterday talking to one of the top um, NFT artists in the space and the discussions I'm having now with a lot of uh, uh, NFT artists. And I'm really, I shouldn't use that term NFT artists because they are digital artists really um, yeah. that gained a lot of recognition using uh, NFTs to sell their works. Now these digital artists, and please again, excuse me if I refer to them as NFT artists because it makes it, um, uh, it, uh, it it's been used that term so often. Now these digital artists, um, they are interested in, in maintaining their value and they want to exhibit in top institutions because they realize in order to have lasting value, mm. I need to play the gallery game too. Mm -hmm. Because of all the noise and all the, the chatter that we hear, I also believe that galleries and art institutions, museum, the MoMA, the Met, the Whitney and so on, they won't go away. And I also don't believe that suddenly they will only show digital art. So for those artists, they come and ask, hey, Magnus, you understand the art market so well. How can we get into the art market and play that role, the gallery game and so on, because we realize that we need it. We're not solely dependent on it, but we need to play that game a little bit in order to get into those institutions. Um, so we are strategizing um, on that, how to get there. Um, and, and those are, um, those are tough conversations because they're fundamentally different to what the Web3 space is uh, all about. So we are now at the stage where we're in a hybrid between Web 2 and Web 3. And I think it would be foolish to only play Web 3 um, uh, games and, and follow the strategy because we still need the existing institutions as they won't go away. I agree with you completely. So, Rafi, coming back to your question, and that was a long, winding answer. Sorry, Corbin. <laughs> yeah, um, wonderful. But, uh, with with Rafi, um, he's always been playing both games, and he does it really well. So he's always been, look at in 2018, he was doing uh, already something at Freeze Art Fair. Um, uh, now the MoMA is kind of the next logical step for him. He's done partnerships with museums around the world, and he's done a great job in branding himself as someone who is accessible to the traditional art world. They um, they understand where he's coming from. He's very uh, very transparent about the process, how he creates his works. So they think, oh, graphic digital artists. We know digital artists because we've collecting them since 1960. We get it. Super trendy. He also bridges the gap to Web3 because he gained a lot of success there. Let's bring this guy on board. Makes sense for them. I, uh, I, I totally agree. It's, it's very accessible. It's very understandable. It's, it's just a, a powerful, strong visual medium that, that captivates and brings people deeper. And I think it's a wonderful stepping stone. And, and other artists are doing a great job too. I think Justin Avezano um, yeah. is, as always, very strategic about how uh, he positions himself now, especially during Crypto Winter, um, that he, and before that, he reached out to traditional art institutions, galleries, Adam Lindemann, um, and did a show with him in a physical space with paintings. Um, look at what uh, Eric from Art Blocks is doing. Art Blocks, uh, a project that I that I love um, and been following uh, since their beginning. Um, they are partnering uh, with a top Pace. gallery. Yeah. yeah, with Pace Gallery. Um, Pace, in the end, is has also an interest in that because they realize, oh, there are a lot of rich people buying that stuff. Maybe out of these uh, hundreds or thousands of collectors that have um, Scribble and other art uh, block projects, maybe some of them we convert into buyers who also buy our stuff that we have in our inventory. 
Magnus, unfortunately, the time has flown. Um, so the last words are yours. Please do let people know where to find you, where they can get your book, if you're interested in having them reach out for you, uh, to you with any questions, whatever it may be. Thank you very much for having me. Big fan of, of your work, Corbin. Big fan of, of the Minty and all the other projects in the space. Heavy advocate for every digital artist um, using the medium and, and, um, and was so entrepreneurial to, um, to explore it. Um, what I'm trying to do is trying to build that bridge from Web 2 to Web 3, from the traditional art market to the NFT space. And if you're interested in that, as a first starting point, if you're an artist, I wrote this book for you, How to Create and Sell NFTs, together with my co-author, Tim Grin, who is a force in the, um, in the Web 3 space and years of tradition also in the traditional art market. Now, that's a good starting point. If you have more questions, I have online courses for artists and for collectors, where I explain about how the art market works. You can find that on magnusclass.com, and you can also book one-on-one -on -one sessions there. If you just want to leave me a note and say, hey, Magnus, uh, everything that you said is totally wrong. I disagree. <laughs> just um, just reach out to me on Instagram. My Instagram is my name, at Magnus Resch. If you put in Magnus and R, I think I'll be the first one up there. I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Always a pleasure speaking with you. I think, again, just absolute wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate the approach you're taking. I think I'm trying to go Web 3 back into Web 2, you Web 2 into Web 3. You know, we will continue to meet in the middle and, and continue to build these beautiful bridges and just uh, care for and look after, I think, the thing that we both love, the art and the artists. Um, so again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm Colborne Bell. Huge thank you to Deminti. Uh, we were joined by Magnus Reich. And that's it, everybody. See you next time. Breaking news.